I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're very welcome to the second part of Bishop Eamon Casey's own story. He was interviewed at his retirement home in Shanoglishan, County Galway, in 2006. And these are clips taken from those interviews. Eamon Casey was appointed Bishop of Kerry on the 16th of July 1969 and he became the first chairman of Trogra, an Irish Catholic Church Development Aid Agency, in 1973. To continue from where we left off the last time, uh, you arrived back in Ireland after your time working in England. One of the first things you did when you arrived back was you set up Trocra. Now, can you tell me, how how did that all come about? Well, you know, let's be quite clear, it wasn't that exactly one of the first things I did, but I did it uh, fairly early on. And the reason was that I had been already involved with this Our Sister organisation in England, which existed for many, many years before we did. And I'd been working with them. Not, I, I wasn't employed by them. I wasn't on their border otherwise. But I'd been working very closely with them um, for a good number of years. And they had intended opening a branch in Ireland. And it was just around that time that I was made Bishop out of the Blues. And I, having been worked with them, I said, no, no. If there's going to be an organisation in Ireland, it must be Irish. And that's what gave me the idea of setting up Trokira. Um, and having worked, you see, with the CIS organisation in England, I understood all the contacts, I understood how you would help. And of course we had an advantage that many of the other countries don't have because of our missionaries all over the world. I mean, we, 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 we had a unique opportunity of doing something, not only, you know, every part, partly every part of the, of the, of the third world, but by doing it very effectively because we would be doing it in and through our own priests, when you was and when you were them. You were Bishop in Kerry when that happened? Yes. But I saw Troka having a double, a, 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 a double responsibility. One obviously was helping the missioners in the field to overcome the appalling poverty that they had to deal with. And that's the ground and basic work of Trokera or of any such organisation. But equally, I saw it having a role in challenging policies of our own government that didn't help what was happening out there. Mm-hmm. And that's as important. No, don't say it's, it, it is also important that if, if there are policies, government policies, that in some way are not helping that situation, that they be challenged. 
And that, so that is a very, very important role of trochera as well. In fact, when I was in Kerry, I used to have a meeting every year, three meetings a year, for priests home from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Because here they were coming home, you know. And I used to write out to the diocese and say, send in when they're coming. And the first meeting I ever had, I'll never forget it, there was something like, I don't know, three or four hundred priests in my house, in a big house that time. They were everywhere, they were on the stairs, they were in the bedroom, they were in the kitchen, they were all over the place. And it was great for them as well. Many of them, I remember the first one I had, I had two men stood at the mantelpiece. And I'd say, they were there for the best part of an hour. They hadn't met for 50 years. When you came into Kerry, it was, uh, I suppose, a, a huge change. You had Bishop Minahan before you, and he retired at a very... Um, el- as an elderly man, I think he was 84. And you arrived, a young man, was, full I, of ideas. I, was, I didn't know about to be full <laughs> of ideas, but I was half his age, I was 42. Asked to be bishop, never expected to be bishop, I was never even a parish priest, I'm not making any big deal about this, but uh, just the fact, the fact, the fact, right? Now I remember, you know, having to tell my father when I came out, just he took me out to the, and I, I genuinely didn't know what it was at that point of time. And I tried to tell him that I was made a bishop. <laughs> and I drive in the car, the little Volkswagen, and he blessing himself three times and saying, I'll have to, I'll have to pray harder than ever now. Whatever kind of bishop I became, I owe it to two men. I call him Monsignor now, Monsignor John O'Keefe, who was my secretary. He was the man I believed ought to have been made bishop when I was made bishop. But he adopted me from the day I arrived. And whatever kind of bishop I became, he played a major role in it. And then Sean O'Leary, Monsignor, well, I don't think poor John was ever Monsignor, my, my classmate, a delightful character, Sean O'Leary, died very young. He had, a, he had a quite young man. In fact, he drove the whole way to Sligo to see me the last time I was home before he died, and he died, he died a week later. But they were the two men, and for the first two years when I was in Kerry, they would come about every six weeks, We'd go down to Inch, and that put me, put me through my paces. They'd win four arguments, and I'd win two. But that's <laughs> a fact. It was yeah. they, whatever. It was, and, and I'm not saying that now because both men are dead or anything. Like that. They were, they were the making of me. I never did anything very positive for about two years because again I was too young, and I knew I was too young. Yeah, I know. I was only forty-two years of age, and I knew I, I never expected to be a bishop. And suddenly I was in an area I knew nothing about. I had just been building houses most of my life and helping people in, 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 in immigration. That's all, all I've been doing. So I had no real intimate understanding. I've never been a parish priest. I was never a parish priest. You know, so I had no intimate understanding. How, how did the, the rest of the clergy in Kerry take you? You were noted for your getting places fairly quickly. You were always a man to get from one place to another. Oh, yes, I was. Remember those days? Uh, I do, in, in the car, flying I, around. I, I do, I do. Yeah. I'll just tell you a story about that, and we'll go then, because yeah. um, I was in, in the States, I was in charge of Trokera, and with the director of Trokera and myself, we were going to a, a meeting. I don't know where we were going, but we had to stop off in the States for one night. But it so happened that our plane was cancelled, and we had to stay a second night. And so... Uh, we had to go down to, to the to the booking office uh, to book us in for a second night, and uh, the lady inside the counter asked our names, and I gave my name. She stopped, 
said, are you the Bishop of Calais? Or were you? I said, I, said, I, I was. Oh, my God, she said. And she cancelled all. We got the whole night for nothing. She said she was visiting Ireland many, many years before, and on a bus with about 30 other people, and they were coming into Killarney, and I passed the bus on the way in. And see what the, the bus driver told him a whole story about the Bishop of Kerry. And she said, you're the man. <laughs> and we got all free night that night. For it. So it's a small world. Bishop Casey's second appointment was in 1976 to Galway. And from the moment he arrived, he was progressive in his schemes. And one of those schemes was called Mehel, where he raised enough money to build churches around his diocese. Um, when I came to Galway, it was quite clear that we had to build about four new churches because the whole city had suddenly expanded. And it was quite clear to me that several of the parishes in question would not be able to carry the interest they would have to pay on the money they would have to get on loan to build their churches. So I decided that what I should do was collect a sum of money before we started building the churches, which would keep interest off the backs of the parishes as they built the churches. Because certainly two of them, if not three, would they would be paying back for the lifetime of three generations. And I sat down with the priest of the diocese I went around the diocese two or three times and outlined what I had in mind that if we could collect I made up my sums three million and by having that there I would keep interest of the backs of all the parishes all they would ever have to pay was the cost of the church that they built and that was the whole object of it but it took me about two years to I had to convince the priests of it. And of course, that's a very vital point. There's no good in a bishop getting brainwaves and, 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 and not getting explaining them and getting the total support of the clergy, which I did. Uh, uh, that took about a year, a year and a half. But they agreed. Let's do it. And so, uh, we set up a collection in every parish in the diocese. And I think it was a was it a pound a week? I'm not too sure. I, my memory isn't isn't good enough now. Um, from every working person. And needless to say, there were one or two very, very good supporters. We gave far more than that. And it took us three years. I've collected three million. Pope John Paul II visited Ireland in 1979. It was one of John Paul's first foreign visits as a Pope after he was elected in October 1978. And Bishop Amy Casey helped to organise the event in Galway. And he recalls here when the Pope stayed in his house after he had celebrated a youth mass in the city. We, we came back to the house. And of course it was a tremendous privilege for that house that the Holy Father, whom I expect to be a saint one of the days, was in that house. We came in, and of course, we were all weary. <laughs> he was as bright as a button. Obviously, I cleared out my bedroom upstairs in the lot, expecting him to go for a shower and take an hour and a half to, to relax. 
I'm not exaggerating. I used to smoke cigars that time. I and uh, whoever else smoked, there were only three or four bishops there to, to greet him. We lit up. The next thing was he was down within ten minutes. We nearly fainted. We all tried to put out our cigars and throw them into the fire and the and the lot. And then he was so easy to be with. Uh, there was no sense of I don't know is all the word I want to use, but there certainly wasn't. Uh, there was a great sense of a friendly, affectionate presence. He he had that fairly unique quality. And then we went into our lunch. Just four or five bishops and myself. And then we were, I suppose, maybe 10 or 15 minutes into our meal when I was called out urgently. And I came out and these three men were standing at the door all dressed in black with long black coats coats on them. And I was immediately realised who they were. They were the Holy, Holy Father's minds, if I use that word. You know, they accompany him, make sure all the vestments he needs are ready and so forth. And, and I said, good afternoon. They said we're expected for dinner. And I had no idea they were expected for dinner. Oh, I said, certainly, come in, please. Now, remember, I was in the dining room with the hall, and it was, the Holy Father was inside. I had to get back in. And I just said, go down, and they look after you. It was my brother that was looking after the kitchen. He didn't know we were coming. I didn't know they were coming. Fortunately, there's a small little dining room down there. All I know is this anyway. They arrived down here. Here he was, serving the Pope, and serving all of us inside, and suddenly these three guys come down, all right, all in black, and he had to give them a meal. He never even mentioned it to me afterwards. <laughs> never, never mentioned it. The Holy Father was, it was so easy to be at table with him. Not long after that event, Bishop Casey went to Rome to hand in his resignation, knowing that he would be confronted by the media after it became known that he had fathered a child with Annie Murphy, who was just about to publish her book on the story. I met the Pope's representative. Representative? Yes. Did they accept your resignation? No. It took them three days to accept it. He didn't want me to resign. Um, it was, he's now a cardinal, I think, in, 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 in America, who was the, 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 the man there responsible for these matters, and he was extraordinary because I went, all I wanted was go and submit my resignation, acknowledge my wrongdoing, and let it at that, but he wouldn't accept it. He said, the Holy Father doesn't want to accept it. And it, I had to stay for three days, um, and then I had to come home because I knew that this book was going to be published and I had to be at home to respond to it. And actually, the present Bishop of Killala came with me. He was then the president of the Irish College in, 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 in Rome. And um, I just got home and had given my interview before the actual resignation, or at least it was, was, was announced. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, what, that's, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. How did you respond to the book when when it came out? I ignored it. I ignored it. Completely? Until this lady who was maligned in it asked me to, that, that interview that, that was given, asked me to confirm that what was said about her wasn't true. And then I had to go and search out her 
the pieces about holiness to respond, that's all. How did you find your way over to Ecuador? Well, I decided I had to get out before the media descended upon me, because uh, I'd been three days in, in Rome before the Holy Father would accept my resignation. He didn't want me to, res- to resign, so I barely got back in time before it was announced here, and then I wanted to get out before the media descended upon me, and I did that. I just booked my ticket. Just I got my friend to come with me, a very good friend, Tom, to, to come with me. I, I knew I, I knew I would need I would need I would need company, and I did, and and I flew to the states, um, without quite knowing what I would do from there. But whoever did it, I don't know. But anyway, while I was on the plane with my friend, I was brought up first class. It was a bit embarrassing because all the papers were, were on the floor, my photograph on them. And then when we were coming in to land, the hostess very kindly brought us, brought Tom and myself back and asked everybody to remain in their places until she asked them to, 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 to leave. And they brought, I was brought out. And if, as you come out of the plane, instead of taking me down the normal uh, way you would go coming out on, in, 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 into the airport itself, you know that little door that's going out that way as you come out? They took me out that door and down the steps and there was a car waiting for me. And uh, they took my old passport from us, Tom and myself, and brought them back to us and then told us, no, no, who did that? I don't know. Somebody organised this in the background. Excuse me, I'm only telling you, I don't know. That's all I know. Mm-hmm. It was there. And we, 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 I mean, even if you ask me, what do we do with the car? I can't tell you. I have no memory of it. But I know that it was waiting for us. And down we went, and then the first place we stayed was about 200 miles down. In the middle of the night, we were told that the media had found me. And so I found a great friend of mine from Galway, a priest, God rest him, he's dead now. And he very kindly came down in the middle of the night. And because, and yes, we left the car there. Don't ask me whoever, where, whatever it was, I couldn't tell you. But he took us and gave us the car. And then I stayed on the road for about five days so that the media wouldn't find me. I was trying to get to this bishop whom I knew well and whom I knew knew the seed and I wanted to find out a monastery that I, that I could go to and I didn't know enough about them myself but as I was on my way to him he said don't go to me and he gave me the name of another bishop on my way he said he knows all these places and he'll be to advise you which he did we spent two days with him and he advised me to go to this monastery which I did and uh, I spent six months there it was a monastery of men uh, the bulk of them priests a number of brothers as well and they were silent. They didn't speak. And can you imagine me right down in, in the in, in the middle of them? And and and, and the 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 they began to bed of course, but half past eight, nine o'clock. I couldn't go to bed until about half twelve. And I remember twice you couldn't you couldn't smoke within the the, the, the monastery. So I used to have to go out in the in the garden to smoke. And 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 they, they christened it the bishop's smoking parlour. <laughs> but I mean twice I remember I just couldn't hold it in about quarter to twelve maybe, I lit up in my room like, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure, great heavens, within seconds, all these bells went off. And here was I with the window open, I was trying to get the smoke out of the room, and it happened twice, and they never even mentioned it. And this was in the middle of the night for them, like, you know. Mm-hmm. But that was a delightful uh, six months. You know, it helped me to, well, come to terms with myself and with what had happened, and I'd allowed it to happen in my life. And to try to seek out what was God's will for me. Because I had no intention of just dying or giving in. I mean, 
That's God is a God of forgiveness and that is a God of healing. Bishop Casey left the monastery and travelled to Ecuador. He joined St. James's Society of Boston Missionary Order and worked as a curate in a poor parish. And it wasn't too long before he started building again and restoring churches. All these people, I got there about nine months, and I got this cheque for $35,000. And I didn't know the name of God, who the person was. Not from Adam, didn't know. But there it was in my name. And did my parish priest sit up in his chair? I can tell you, that was enough. For there, you see, 35000 there would be like 150000 here. We did up the church, made a beautiful job at the church, built two schools, and then brought in nuns and, 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 and built a little hospital and brought in nuns. There, normally, they would only have a doctor about every month. Now, one of these nuns was a doctor as well, but they were, they were all nurses. Mm-hmm. They, were the, they, they were the tremendous things that we did, thanks to the generosity of the people. And then every place I was in Ireland, due to my family, they all sent me money all the years I was there. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't think p- people fully appreciate or understand the difference that they make when they send support to missionaries. Mm-hmm. If, they only, if they could only see with their own eyes what that money does, they'd send three times as much. <laughs> What about the language over there? Because I had to learn it. Well, did it take you long to pick it up? Of course it did. But I should have picked it up in six months. What they do is they send you away to a school, but they couldn't send me to the normal school they go to because the media would find me there and would give me no peace. And so they sent me this way, way up. Uh, not Mexico City, about another city in Mexico, about 150 kilometres at least if not 200, from Mexico City. Because there was a, there, there was a very good um, school there that they had used once or twice. But they didn't want to send me to that normal school because they knew the media would find me. And so I was there about three months, and the, the owner of that school, he was a layman, but he was very clear to me. He said, there's no point in just learning good Spanish. If you don't speak it well, there's no good in, in, your, in your profession as a priest. If you don't speak it well, there's no point in knowing it. So he said, we'll spend the first three months only on pronunciation, nothing else. You won't be learning, you know, the different words and so forth, right? And we just had done that for about three months when one morning I was out, walking up and down, waiting for the the, the, the school to, to begin. I was always up there ahead of it. I stayed in the convent, which was delightful. I had mass there every morning. They were delighted to have the mass as well. But then... Suddenly these two cars turned in in front of the gate and two men jumped out of one and began to take photographs of me. And I knew immediately that I had been betrayed, that somebody had betrayed where I was. So I ran through the gate and where I got the Spanish, I don't know, but there was a young fella looking after the grounds and I said, close that gate and don't let them in. Now, how I said it, I, but he knew it because he did it. But then the extraordinary thing is I went down to the headmaster of that school I often get the feeling, you know, that we in the English-speaking world, not deliberately, no, 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 but like in the back of our heads, we feel that these people are really not quite as educated as we are. We are so dead wrong. They'd leave us standing down the road, i tell you that now. I mean, did this man, or he knew that I was a priest? No, I was not the sky above me. And all in five minutes, less, I had to tell him who I was, and why I had to leave, and why I was learning Spanish there to go on the missions. And he said to me, 
he commented on it. And I told him that, that the media had found me and that I had come here specifically so that the media wouldn't annoy me. And now that they had found me, I, mean, I, I, I had no hope of staying. And he said, go upstairs, pointed up to a window, go up and stand inside that window. And then I couldn't hear what he was saying, but, but he told me afterwards, he sent the young fellow and said, let them come in. And in they came. And I could see his gesticulations when he told me afterwards, they were saying, but we saw him. I don't know who you're talking about. There's nobody of that nature here at all. And they kept at this, we'll say, for about five or seven minutes. And finally, they said, very well, they said, let us go through your classes. And he said, certainly I will, but I must first warn my teachers. I don't want you to disrupt my classes. And here's a man who, who never knew who I was before. This was already within 15 minutes. He came in, and what he did was he rang me upstairs. He said, come down, stand outside the door, at the back door. And when you hear a bell, he said, run down to my house. His house was a but a quarter of a mile down the road from the, from the school. So down I came, and I stood outside the door, and the bell went. And you know what? It took a few seconds. Now, it sounded like a minute, but it took for me to say, oh, good God, that was the bell. And I ran. And so a fellow priest who was there, I was meeting him that night, and he told me I'd only just passed the window when they came in, but I did. And down I went to the, to, 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 to the house, and he had rung his wife and said it was coming. And I, she... I said, give me a cup of tea and give me a half an hour. That's what I always do if I'm in a crisis. I sit down for a half an hour. So I, co- I, I took the mug of coffee and I went down. And I saw there was I had to get out. And to get out immediately, because once they'd found me there, they wouldn't leave until they found me. So I made up my mind, I have to go. And I have to go now. And so I came back out. And he eventually came down. He had got rid of them. But he knew he hadn't got rid of them, but he had got rid of them out of his grounds. He knew that they knew about that because they'd seen me. They'd be waiting outside. And look what he did. And he'd never known until that moment, only half an hour before or an hour before, who I was. And how did you manage to get away from that situation then? So he came down and, and, and he said, I'll drive out now. He said he had a big car in which he used to go out and collect students from around the town. He said, I'll drive out on that and they'll take it for granted that you're lying down on the back of it. And then he said to his wife, he said, you take father out to this man. The man, I rang the man in Mexico to tell him I had to get out. He said, I have a friend up there, he'll bring you down. What was about 500 kilometres. So he went off and then she took me out to this man and their son followed her to make sure I wasn't followed. And this man, whom I'd never met before in my life, but he was a friend of this, friend of mine down in Priest, he took me down. And who was below? These were Augustinians. The head of the Augustinians for the whole world. Who was the Galway man? And you probably knew this man. I'm sure, of course, I knew him. But the extraordinary thing was that he was there. He was the head of their order for the whole world. And with my memory now, you see, the name, I knew him like the back of my hand, but the name, the name won't come to me now. And so what did he do? Believe this now. He went up in an old rickety bus, five and a half hours journey, to collect my passport, my my immediate belongings. We left all the other stuff there. And came down again that same day, a thousand miles, up and down. And the following morning, they took me out to the airport, and he went in with my passport. Because we knew now that there was that there would be all around still watching to, to, to find us. He went in with my passport, and we were no more light than the man on the moon, and he came out with my boarding card. I got on the, on, the, on the plane, and down we went, and I, I arrived in Florida, to, to my friend, Father Peter. And, of course, they were all waiting for me. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. Because 
the people who had come and found me there, and I haven't time now to go into, you know, what happened and what I, I, I gave an interview to the lady who came with them, whom I had known, because she was the lady who had told me that Annie was going to print what was printed about me. And um, when uh, I, I couldn't meet her that night because I was meeting this priest, and so I said, right, I'll, I'll get the book, and you tell me the paragraphs that I know are untrue, that's what she said about you, and I'll respond to them, so I did. And I left it at that. And that was the journalist, Veronica Gearn. Right, but what I didn't know was that... She was only sent in by this um, newspaper man. And what he did subsequently was he took out her questions and put in a question from himself as if he had interviewed me. I see. And that's what was coming out the following morning in the Independent. Yeah. And so when I got back at 2 o'clock in the morning, the Irish press was in existence that time and the editor of the Irish press some instinct in him told him that this couldn't be true. Don't ask me how or why would he, that's what he did. And so he hadn't gone to publication and they were all waiting for me to ring him, which I did. And a young fellow answered the phone. And uh, I said, this is uh, Bishop Casey, I said, uh, I want to speak to your editor. And the young fellow said, certainly Bishop. And he went up to the editor and he said, Bishop Casey is on the phone. And the editor said he couldn't be. He couldn't be on the phone. I've been looking for him all day. And the young fellow said, but he is on the phone, sir. How do you know? He said, sure, he said he was always on the phone to my father. He was Tony Mead's son. Wasn't that a coincidence? An, an extraordinary coincidence. I know his voice well. And so I gave my interview, which appeared, you see, on the same morning as the false interview. Yeah. Do you see, it appeared in the Irish press, which was yeah. there at the time. At the but then when I got off the phone, I decided, well, the Irish press hasn't circulation of the Independent. And so I phoned RTE. And it was about four o'clock in the morning. And a young fellow answered. And I said, look, all I'm going to do is make a statement. I said, but I'll, I'll ask, I'll answer no questions, please. I'll just give. So I made my statement. That I had not, had not given an interview, etc., etc., etc. And then um, he tried to ask me a few questions. I said, no, please. I said, no questions. And then I realised that nobody had heard, from me, had heard from me for over a year, year and a half. And I said, something like, hope you're all well. God bless you. Good night. That's it. And that was that story, and that's, that's how it happened. I asked Eamon to tell me more about that interview that he gave to Veronica Gearn. Um, Veronica Gearn came to interview me when I was staying with my great friend um, in the States. And uh, so I eventually agreed with him, um, I was staying with him, that at least I talked to her, God rest her. I talk to her and then make my decision. So we did. She was taken in a local hotel. We would talk for a few hours every day. And I just was satisfied that I could trust her. And I didn't mind telling my story. Right? So I agreed. And she obviously communicated that back to her boss. And the following morning, I was due to say mass for her parents. And she was late, which was most unusual for her. And she came feeling very distressed. Because her boss was coming. And uh, she said, you know, he'll want to do the interview. So um, I said, forget it. If I do the interview, and I haven't said I will, you're the only one I'll do it with. And that's it. So we met the editor. And she was right, that's what he was coming for. So I said, I'm sorry. You know, 
I've talked with this woman for the last two to three days. I've total confidence in her. I'll do it with her or not at all. And so he had to accept it. But once I was, she convinced me, you know, that I should do it, I did it. But I wasn't all in, in tenderhooks as to how it would go down. I said what I said, and if the people didn't like it, I, I could do nothing about it. And I wasn't going to worry about it either. But I was glad that I had the opportunity of saying what happened, and not in any way trying to justify any wrong ideas I didn't do. I, 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 that isn't why I did it. I was asked to do my story, and I did it. And she was, she was very professional. She was very, very good. Did you make any decision at any time that you wanted to leave the priesthood? Not at all, never. Never, I've answered you, never. N-E-V-E-R, in case you can't spell it yourself. Yeah. Never. And so Dr. Eamon Casey's last appointment was as a curate to Sussex. And in a parish there, he spent the next six years before he finally retired and came back to Ireland to County Galway and a place called Shanoglisha. I came back to England, yes. How did you settle in there? Perfect, no problem. Genuinely, I had no problem whatsoever. Settling as a curate, I had, I had uh, curate in a, in a large parish, three three churches. Was Father Martin, the parish priest, and myself. And then I was also a chaplain to hospital of three hundred and twenty beds, uh, where the average presence of Catholics would vary from, we'll say, twenty five to forty. And that was my main. Well, it was my. They were both my main jobs. I was both a curate in the parish, and I was chaplain to the hospital which I loved, and, and, and uh, I've spent a little over six years at it, and, en- and enjoyed it, enjoyed it. And at, at any stage, you were always on, on the alert, though, were you? I mean, did it, were the media always hunting you? Or no, sure, that's the reason I went to England. Mm-hmm. Nobody bothered They did, when I, they didn't bother me, because I, I didn't allow them to bother me. Mm-hmm. I was only there a short time in, in, in a temporary position, because somebody had got ill, and it was only in this place for about six months, and they arrived to me one afternoon, two of them, and said, we'd like to give an interview. I said, I've already said I won't give interviews. I said, I've made that public, you know. Ah, they said, you know, we only just want to ask you a few years. Gentlemen, I said, do you understand English? I don't give interviews. You can stay here now, I said. I'm saying my rosary. I'm waiting for a pal to go out to lunch with, but I won't talk to you. And they've never bothered me since. Mm-hmm. Yet I just decided that I didn't come to Ireland when I came back because I knew the media would give me no peace. And I've had total peace in my six and a half to seven years in England, at least when they tried to, when they, they knew I won't, and I, not, not when I know either. But um, I just, in fact, I didn't intend to come back until the end of this year. But then when this false accusation was against, again, made against me, I had to leave. And that's why I'm back so quickly. But I would have come back at the end of this year anyway. The churches to look at this situation of themselves. The state have looked at it and said there's no case. Churches to do the same. And when they've, when they've done the research, yes, I'll, 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 I'll be back able to say mass in public. And give sermons, which is well, something that you enjoy doing. Yeah, well, well, what's the point of being back on Sunday morning and not giving the sermon? The people would love it, I'm sure, whatever. Mm. Isn't that all? We're expected to do more than just say the mass. Mm. I will. And Shanoglisha, it's, it's, it's a lovely place. It's a place you'd like to live out the rest of your life. I'm not going to make any comment about that because I don't know what my future is and I'm not in, I'm not in charge of my future. That's genuine. I'm not trying to avoid anything. Mm. I mean, genuinely, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. All I know is that within, hopefully, a month or two, 
I'll be allowed to say public mass. It's up to the bishop then what he wants me to do or doesn't want me to do. We've come to the end of this week's podcast, Bishop Eamon Casey's own story, and I hope you enjoyed it. And now for a sample of next week's podcast. Even though I wouldn't sleep lucre until they waited by the river Black Barter and carried on one side and carried it, then it would then she said so much to all the podcast. Here we danced the Talibara, which was the Jitsed, and the Victoria. Stories and music from Shliv Lucra. Well, I honestly think the Shliv Lucra music is the best music in Ireland, and it took him a long time to recognise it. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you that podcast next week. <laughs>